My name is Kirk McLeod, and yes, I do have the lofty title of major based on my years experience as a Salvation Army officer. When I was commissioned as a young lieutenant, I used to make fun of the cranky old majors in our midst, and now I have become one of the cranky old majors uh, in the midst of my fellow officers. Uh, one of the things that I've appreciated about my time at Acadia Divinity College was not only were we given permission to bring our perspective, those of us outside of the Baptist tradition, we were encouraged to do so and welcome to do so. And it gave me a sense of worth. And it also gave me a sense that of belonging, that even though I'm going to a Baptist seminary, uh, my traditions and my understanding of what the church is supposed to be about as a salvationist was welcomed. And I truly hope that people have gotten half the blessing that I've experienced through not only the teaching uh, with the profs, but also the interaction with other students. Uh, it really has been a rewarding experience, uh, one that I am forever grateful for. So as I come to you with my message, I come as an officer who was commissioned and ordained uh, in the Salvation Army 24 years come June. And my denomination was not created in the heat of the Reformation. There was no 95 theses nailed to a door. There was no great theological debates on baptism or on church leadership. Uh, there was no arguments over leadership style uh, within the confines of our movement. My denomination was born on the street in front of the Blind Beggar Pub in the East End of London on Whitechapel Road, where William Booth preached his first sermon in the late 19th century in a part of that city that was considered one of the worst slums in all of Europe. The Salvation Army was a church for, and eventually run by, those who were poor and marginalized. Uh, the Booth's attitude was, we get these people saved, we uh, bring them into our movement, and we encourage and equip them to go out and do ministry. And so our denomination, our spiritual background, is with the poor. It would be the height of arrogance on my part to somehow express any kind of attitude that the Salvation Army is the only Christian denomination that does work very well and very effectively among the poor. There were plenty of Christians and churches doing fantastic work among the poor before we arrived, and there are plenty of churches and Christians doing fantastic work among the marginalized today, including churches within the CBAC. So I don't come as an expert in regards to or from a lofty position when I talk about ministering to the poor. But I do come as someone from a tradition where giving to the least of these is incorporated within the spiritual DNA of my movement. And I've often told my fellow salvationists, if we forget that, we forget the reason why God has raised us in the first place. And I would respectfully argue that that is not only the call for the Salvation Army, but for each and every one of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus identifies with the least of his brothers and sisters, he reminds the church that he unequivocally and totally identifies with us. In a sense, he puts his arms around us and says, he or she is mine. I identify with this person. And they come alongside us. Now, the question we have to ask is his followers who have that identity, who have that ownership within the family of God, we have to ask, who do we seek to identify as we seek to represent Christ in the communities where we dwell? Who are we, in a sense, putting our arms around and coming alongside? There's a story of William Booth, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army, told by his son Bramwell in his autobiography. 
And Bramall at the time was a young teen in Victorian London. He was walking down the street with his father in the East End of London. And they walked by a public house, a pub. And, Bra and William Booth looked to his son and he said, let's go inside. Now, if I took my 14-year-old to a pub and let him go inside, my wife would most certainly not be pleased with me. But William Booth did that with Bramwell, and he brought him in. And Bramwell Booth commented, there are two things that hit him. The first was the sight of the drunkenness and the debauchery that was taking place. And this was a young man sheltered in a Christian home. The second thing that hit him was the smell. And when you watch BBC period pieces about the Victorian era and there's a scene taking place in a pub or a slum, the first thing that always goes into my mind is, I bet you that smells really bad. And so he brings his young son into this pub with all this horrible stuff taking place. And he looked and he saw the look of absolute shock on his young teenage son's face. And Booth said to his son, Willie, these are our people. These are the people I want you to live for and to bring to Christ. And Bramwell Booth wrote many years later, that impression never left him. And he eventually became a general himself. He, became, he followed his father in leadership of the army. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus deliberately identified with those who are marginalized and often marginalized in society. The Samaritans, the woman at the well, the tax collectors, the lepers, people who were reviled, experienced in Jesus, more than just forgiveness and healing, they were showed an attitude that declared that they were worthy of dignity and respect. And they were reminded that they were created in the image of God and that they mattered, that they had purpose, and that their past did not have to define their future. When Saul was confronted by Christ on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, he didn't say to Saul, 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 why do you persecute my church? Or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my followers? What did he say? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so when he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, or I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, he comes alongside us and completely and totally identifies with us. Because he wants more than our salvation and restoration, and that's why he came and died for us. But he yearns for our friendship and fellowship. And if we seek to emulate our Savior who has saved us and redeems us and who befriends us, if we seek to allow God's Spirit to work in our lives so that the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our actions and words and attitudes, then we are called to identify with those who have been marginalized in our society and racial, social, and economic justice need to be at the heart of our witness in our communities. And I yearn for the days when the church is once again identified as being the champion of those issues, rather than what the public sometimes negatively perceives of us, sometimes unfairly, but unfortunately sometimes justifiably. There are times when we're under the impression that we have to run elaborate or expensive programs to minister to those needs. We have to have a work group. We have to have planning. We have to have this funding. We have to have this grant. And don't get me wrong, there are programs that are run that are elaborate that are very effective. But I sometimes worry, I'm going to say this, you won't share this with anybody else, will you? This is an in-house secret. But I sometimes worry as the Salvation Army that we've become so professionalized in our social services ministry that we've divided the spiritual and, and the, 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 the good works. We send people to the family services center. 
or we send them to the family services worker and they look after them Monday to Friday from nine to four. And then we worship on Sunday or we do Bible study Wednesday evening. And my biggest fear for the army is that we don't, we don't separate that important integral part of our mission. Both must be in balance. And as I've reminded Salvationists, William and Catherine Booth started the Salvation Army first and primarily to bring people into a safe relationship with Jesus Christ. And the ministry of social work flowed from that truth. William Booth says, you cannot preach the gospel to somebody with a toothache or somebody who doesn't have a good pair of boots. And so they work hand in hand together. Sometimes a cup of water given in the name of Jesus with love and compassion can have an impact in ways we can't even imagine. Now, as a young Salvationist growing up in the 1980s, which kind of labels how old I am, um, I would take my turn standing on kettles at Christmas time. And you've all seen them at Christmas time. The Salvation Army has the kettle set up in the stores, and it's our fundraising effort. That's how we, we, um, that's how we raise money, not only to do our Christmas ministry, but to help people throughout the year. And back in the 1980s, when there was many more World War II veterans, they would come up to me. And they said, when I was in Europe, the Salvation Army would be waiting for the soldiers coming off the line in their canteen, and they would offer coffee and a donut. And they'd be putting money in the thing, and I'd be like a young person. Okay, that's interesting. And they'd say there are other agencies that they would name, but I won't, that would have their hand out, and they wouldn't get the coffee and donut until they gave them the money. The Salvation Army said, if you can pay, that's great, but if you can't, don't worry about it. Now, what's the cost of a coffee and a donut? You can go to Tim's today and get a coffee and donut for under five bucks. But it never ceased to amaze me the impact it had on those veterans. And they never, decades after the war ended, they never, ever forgot that. And that stayed with me for a long time, that I am benefiting as a Salvationist because the work of Salvationists who have gone on to glory, who are probably not here anymore, and yet... It has left a legacy that we continue to benefit from. And even when I was standing on kettles in New Minas and in Windsor and Kentville, in this World War II vet generation, most of them have passed on. But their children, the baby boomers that come up, my father used to say that the Army always supported him and that he appreciated what they did. And that's why I'm giving to the Salvation Army. Never, ever underestimate how God can take a little common decency and compassion and use it to have an impact on a person going through a scary or stressful time. Now, just last week, I had a woman come to the church to donate $40 because she did not have a job, in the, because she didn't have a job at the time. She had one now, and a decent one. And when she didn't have a job, we provided toys and, and food at Christmas, and we gave her a bit of help until she's able to get back on her feet. And she stood there with tears in her eyes telling me this. And I was reminded as we tabulate our statistics and we promote our work and we seek to raise money for that work, we can never forget the real reason why we do what we do, regardless of our denomination. We see the one person in need of the cup of water or something to eat, and they need compassion and they need somebody to meet their need in the name of Jesus Christ. We understand, of course, that we're not saved through our works, but our actions are often a good measurement of how much we are growing in our relationship with Christ. 
just as a sore throat or a cough and high temperature can indicate that there's an issue with our body, an uncaring and cold attitude can point to a need that we need to be more sensitive to the spirits leading in our lives. And the one thing we must guard against as we spend more years in ministry, we have to guard against cynicism because it can creep very carefully into our attitudes and into our actions and our words if we are not careful. Uh, people are draining, make no mistake about it. And not just those who seek help. Sometimes church people can be draining too. Uh, that's just the reality. And we have to guard our spiritual walk with Christ. And the danger is we start to believe in the moments of frustration or tiredness or aggravation, we could start to believe stereotypes about people that hinder our ability to see them through Christ's perspective. And they become a client rather than a person. And at Christmas time, inevitably, by the 23rd, I always have that phone call. Oh, I've, I didn't know that I was supposed to register for Christmas help. And they've been getting help from the Salvation Army for 10 years. And I'm at the point where after working six weeks, seven days a week, standing on kettles, picking up kettles, counting money, picking up toys, registering people, dropping off sunshine bags at, at nursing homes, going out serenading with the band, doing all the other Christmas stuff that I'm supposed to do as a pastor. By the time the 24th rolls around, I'm completely exhausted. And I know a lot of clergy are in the same boat. And there are times when, like my Newfoundland wife often says to me, when I don't listen for the fifth time, you got me nerves, rub, raw. Like, you know that this is when you're supposed to get help. You know that this is when you're supposed to come. And then I'm reminded that I am called to be Christ's representative in the world. And a lot of people are in the position they had because they didn't have the benefits I had growing up. I had a mom and dad who not only provided for me physically and emotionally, but taught me the way to go, taught me the, the, the basic skills that I needed to get by in life. And there are a lot of people who don't have that, who've never had that, who've never had that opportunity and society condemns them because of it. And yet they've really never been given the training, the basic life skills that they need to get by in life. Now, some people need our help simply because they're hitting a bad spot. But a lot of our people are vulnerable in society because they've never been given a chance. The people around Jesus looked at the outcasts in their society and they saw what they were. Jesus looked at them and saw what they could become. And we must see people for what they can become, understanding that this is not going to happen overnight. And that it requires love, patience, and a relationship that gives the person a sense of worth and purpose. One of the very first classes I took, I took two classes. One was uh, spiritual leadership with Harry, and the other was evangelism with Steve. And Steve said something to the class that's always stayed with me in the evangelism class. He said, we have to befriend people who don't know Jesus. Makes sense. If you're going to present the gospel. But he said, even if we, they don't accept Christ, we don't stop being their friend. And that has stayed with me because we can look at people as a statistic or a shot to our ego rather than who they are, children of God dearly loved in his sight. People frustrate us sometimes. They even break our hearts. But we have to remember we're representing more than ourselves. We're representing Christ. And we have to remember the patience and love and compassion that he bestows upon us. Because more than meeting physical needs, we need to give people a sense of dignity and worth. 
We want them to understand that they were created by God for a purpose. We want them to understand that they have worth in God's sight. And we want them to feel that they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. When Sharon and I were in one particular appointment, we ran a breakfast program. We used to allow people to uh, get their own continental breakfast four days a week. On the Thursday morning, we did a cooked breakfast. And we had a ton of volunteers for that program. And quite a few of them weren't Salvationists. They were Catholics that the Catholic Church was just down the road. And we had a lot of Catholic support. And there was one couple who went to our church. And he wasn't allowed in the kitchen. His wife would kick him out. I love programs where people say to Sharon and I, yeah, we don't need you. Don't be in the kitchen. Stay out of our way. I love when that happens. So we could just sit back and observe and watch. And Bill Bill Bowers is the guy's name. He's a retired, uh, he was a retired uh, Air Force. He was a colonel in the Canadian Air Force. And he would go with his coffee mug and he'd go table to table and he'd sit down with the people who were getting breakfast and he'd know them by name. He'd know their situation. He'd ask about their kids. He'd ask about their health. He would thank them for coming by. And he would say, it's so good to see you. Hope things are going well. And we brought in three or four people into our church membership through that, um, through that program. Unfortunately, after Sharon and I left that appointment, uh, a new person took over and his attitude was, okay, we're going to feed them. The doors open at 8.30, not before. The doors close at 9.30. We're not going to let anybody in after that. This is what you're allowed. We don't care if you want an extra egg. Everybody gets the same. And it was an attitude that even though the food was being provided, the dignity and the sense of self-respect was lost. And we don't want to lose that when we're ministering to people, regardless if we're ministering to people in need or even people within our church. In the town where I grew up, there were certain kids that before they walked through the classroom door, they were going to be labeled because of where they lived or what their last name was. And that's unfortunately a truth. I grew up in the good part of town. I grew up uh, off of South Street in Glace Bay and my father was a police officer. My mother was a nurse. We were distinctly middle class. And so I had an advantage that certain kids didn't have. But because maybe their father got in trouble with the law or their brother was a, their older brother or sister was a problem, they were labeled before they even walked through the door. We don't want to do that as the Church of Christ. We want to see people as God sees them and the inherent worth that they have. And we need them to know that they have worth and not just from God's perspective, but from our own. And as we prepare to enter Holy Week, we take to, to remember the sacrifice, to pay homage to the Christ of Calvary, but also of course to rejoice in the reality of the resurrected Savior. And we remember what was done on our behalf. And we live our lives according to that truth, that grace and love so readily and so willingly and so lovingly bestowed in our lives. And certain of God's love for us, we are determined that we share that love with others. We are called to identify with the marginalized, to understand that even in simple acts of kindness, we can have a profound, profound difference in someone's life and that we can give people a sense of their worth in the sight of God. My mother didn't have the upbringing that I had. She had a father who had gone through the war, who had gone missing in action in Holland when his Jeep ran over a landmine 
and came back with physical and emotional and spiritual scars. He died at 52 because of his addiction issues. My mother grew up in the Salvation Army and actually our family, her family were United Church. But my grandmother, her, my mother's grandmother had been a Salvationist. And so my mother started going to Brownies at the Salvation Army, started to go into church there. And she never forgot the people who showed her compassion, who would pick her up because they didn't have a car and take her to church. And when my mother got in a position where she had money and she had influence, she never, ever forgot that. And my mother would pick up some of the old women who lived on the other side of town in the neighborhood where she grew up to take them to church. And I would say, Mom, there are like 10 people from our church who live within a two-minute drive. And you're, why don't you get them to get them to take these women? And Mom said, no. She said, I never had a car. People would come pick me up. And my mother never forgot that. And it has guided her life ever since. And it's a value that she taught my brother and I. And so we can never forget the sense of worth that we can give people and let them know how important they are in the sight of God so that they turn to Jesus as, the, as, as their Savior and Lord. I pray that in your ministry setting, wherever that may be, that you will understand the impact that you can have for the kingdom of God. Never underestimate what you can do, giving a cup of water in Jesus' name, and that in faith and in reassurance that God is using you for his divine purpose. Thank you.